the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Well, folks, welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We do this show every weekend on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950. That's WTLN in Orlando, Florida. Alan Dempsey. Well, he's our engineer every weekend and always does a marvelous job. Andrew Hurtliska is our producer. And in this first half hour, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones is with us from Louisville, Kentucky, award-winning journalist. And we're going to plow into the book, How We Got the Bible. Oh, boy, Rose Publishing. Doc, nice to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. Great to be with you again. So how did we get the Bible? What's so special about the Bible? And that's the question, what's so special about the Bible? Because you think about it, there probably aren't a lot of people who are going to do a 10, 12, 15-week study on how we got Wizard of Oz or something like that. (laughs) But how we got the Bible, people will study how we got the Bible and will study the Scriptures for years at a time. So sometimes we as Christians, we really do need to sit back and ask ourselves, why is this book so special? And of course, we as Christians believe that this book comes from God. That's what we mean when we use that word inspiration. Sometimes we use these big words and we don't really even think about what they mean, but the word inspired or inspiration means literally it's, it's God-breathed, is what is. God breathed it out. In other words, we believe that this book, the words of this book, come from the innermost essence of who God is, and that we therefore say there inspired. And so that's what's so special about the Bible, is that this book is inspired by God. Now, because it's inspired by a God who never lies, who always tells the truth, then that also means that the Bible tells the truth. Uh, That is to say, it reports what happened, even when what happened wasn't right, it reports what happened accurately. And that's what we mean when we use the word inerrant, without error, simply that the Bible, in everything that it affirms as true, it's telling the truth. So we believe that the Bible is inspired. It comes from God, and because it comes from God, it is inerrant. It's without error, because it comes from a God who always tells the truth. Here's the second question you raise in this book. How did the Old Testament get from God to you? Well, when we look at the Old Testament, one of the first interesting things we see in the Old Testament is one of the first reports of actually things being written uh, from the Old Testament is God himself writing the words of the Ten Commandments for Moses. Uh, Kind of that reminder early on that, yes, indeed, this book comes from God. But the way we get the Old Testament is over more than a a thousand years uh, of, of the development and writing of the Old Testament. And you think about it, that it was originally written by people with pieces of leather, with stone, things like that that they're writing on with a tiny papyrus, uh, with a tiny reed brush that was kind of kind of made in the end, almost like a paintbrush or something like that, uh, that it, they were using at that time. And they wrote this over decades, over centuries, as it begins with Moses, and then it is continued through others writing, court chroniclers, all of that, until it is then brought together sometime, sometime in the 5th uh, fourth century uh, BC uh, by Ezra uh, was one of those that brings all of this together into this book that then is copied accurately, and that Jesus Himself used the Old Testament as His scriptures. And so the Old Testament comes just through this long process of of being copied, of being written, and then is brought together uh, toward the end of the Old Testament era, and then is copied accurately, and Jesus himself uses the Old Testament as his Bible. 
Timothy <clears throat> Paul Jones. Dr. Jones is our guest. Uh, the name of the book is How We Got the Bible, and it's a fascinating look here. Now, Doc, uh, this question, which books belong in the Old Testament? Little, and that's one of those important questions, exactly. A <laughs> little, late to, little late to ask it, isn't it? I mean, we've already got yes. And one of the things that people legitimately raise is the question, and it's something we really need to deal with and often don't deal with adequately, and that is the question of why do Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, why do they have in their Old Testament a few extra books compared to what we might call a Protestant Old Testament um, mm-hmm. in that? And and that those extra books get in there about a few couple of centuries before the time of Christ, uh, when the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it gets pulled together at that time. And so those books were in this Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament. But bo- those books never appeared in the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament that Jesus used. And we know that Jesus was using that Hebrew-Aramaic Old Testament that never included those books, and we know that because he says, for example, in Luke chapter 24, he refers to the Bible, the Old Testament, in three parts that were the Hebrew and Aramaic three sections of it, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, is what he refers to in Luke chapter 24. And so my belief is that if we take our canonical cues from Jesus as to what books belong in the Old Testament, that those extra books shouldn't be there because they were never part of the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament that Jesus himself used. What is in those books? What are, uh, who wrote them? What do they say? Is it anything of value? It does have value. I really believe that it does, uh, even though I don't think it belongs in the Bible. It's valuable books. I encourage people to read them. So it's a variety of authors. And so you've got books, for example, uh, first, second, third, and, and fourth in some in the Eastern Orthodox Bible, Maccabees, uh, which tells the story of what happened between the Old and New Testaments among the Jews and how there was a rebellion against the Seleucids and all of these different things like that that help us understand very, very clearly the world in which Jesus was living. There's a great book called Tobit, which is this tale, uh, almost a quest-type tale, of um, of an individual who uh, that his son goes with, and there's a pet dog in the story and goes to try to get healing for his father's eyes and, and all sorts of things like that. It's actually a really fascinating story, the book of Tobit. So there's all these little stories, and as I said, that, that I don't think that we should avoid them. They're not dangerous. They just don't belong in the Bible, but they do help us to understand the world in which Jesus was born and how the Jewish people were thinking at that time. I guess the question is, who decided that they would not be in the Protestant Bible? And it's one of those things that nobody really decided that. Um, they mm-hmm. never; they just have never been part of the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament. And so the decision, so to speak, we could say, is that the Jewish people never received those books as the inspired Word of God. And since the Jewish people didn't receive them as the inspired Word of God, then uh, Jesus, as a, as a Jew, did not do that, nor did the earliest Christians, and uh, they aren't really recognized uh, by anyone in, in among Christians until a, until a later time uh, when they begin using those in that way. And so it's more the, the question is, these, it's not who decided they should be cut out, but, but later on they worked their way in is kind of how it would have happened. Uh, our guest is Timothy Paul Jones. Uh, Dr. Jones uh, has authored How We Got the Bible. Let's move to this topic. Can we trust the New Testament? That's one of the things that is so important for us to help people understand today is why we can trust the New Testament, because so many attacks being made on whether the New Testament is true or not. And why we can trust the New Testament, the number one thing that I want people to understand in why we can trust the New Testament is that every book in the New Testament can be traced back to an eyewitness, or a close associate of an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something we sometimes forget, is that these books in the New Testament are not written 300, 400 years after the time of Jesus. Rather, they are written in the first century, in the very century in which Jesus lived and died and was said to have been raised from the dead. And not only that, every single one of them can be traced back to someone 
who saw Jesus alive or somebody who was a close associate of those who saw Jesus alive. My guest is Timothy Paul Jones. Uh, Dr. Jones has penned uh, a valuable book. It's called How We Got the Bible. Uh, we've got one more segment with Dr. Jones. We've got some more interesting topics to cover. Uh, just a reminder, folks, uh, I'm Pat Williams, and you're listening to the uh, Power Hour, the Saturday Power Hour. We do this show every weekend, and uh, always delighted to have you. It's uh, the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. That's where you're listening, right here in Orlando. Uh, please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, uh, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. More with Dr. Timothy Paul Jones right after these messages. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Do you have enough drinking water at home or work? For whatever life throws at you. This is Florida, and you can never have enough good, wholesome drinking water on hand for meetings, family gatherings, even Mother Nature's wrath. Be prepared with Carolina Highland Mountain Spring Water delivered directly to your home or business. Call 407-851-7144 or online at carolinabottledwater.com. There are no delivery fees, no contracts, and now take advantage of their Be Prepared delivery special in individual bottles, dispensers, and coolers. The purest water delivered to your doorstep, guaranteed. Get started now. Call 407-851-7144, 407-851-7144, or online at carolinabottledwater.com. Refreshing taste, unrivaled purity, the healthier choice for home or office. Carolina's Highland Mountain Spring Water. Call 407-851-7144, online at carolinabottledwater.com. Refresh today. Hi, it's me again. Does your garage door still have the blues? Making those late night noises? Won't shut when you back out, no matter how many times you try? Well, it's time to get rid of those garage door blues. With Florida Door Solutions, they fix, repair, replace, install, create, design, and upgrade garage doors and garage door openers. Garage doors don't like to have the blues. You need to call Florida Door Solutions. They can upgrade your garage door with the latest state-of-the-art system from LiftMaster with the exclusive gateway accessory. Call Florida Door Solutions at 866-FLA-DOOR. Florida Door Solutions has the reputation for doing the job right the first time. Every time, we're sent to Florida's headquarters for the best garage door and entry gate products from Clopay, Overhead Door, LiftMaster, and more. Don't leave that shiny new SUV sitting on the driveway. And besides, we know who's driving that SUV. Score some points and get rid of those garage door blues with Florida Door Solutions. That's 866-FLA-DOOR. Or take a tour online at FLADOOR.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Dr. Timothy Paul Jones is with us from Louisville, Kentucky. We're working our way through his most recent book, How We Got the Bible. Uh, Doc, now we have arrived at who created the New Testament canon. Fill us in on that, please. And that's been a question ever since the Da Vinci Code came out uh, just a few years ago that people are asking, because one of the charges in the Da Vinci Code was that the New Testament canon gets created by Constantine hundreds of years after the time of Jesus, and it was strictly on a political basis that uh, this book was supposedly pulled together, which, as we find in the in the early centuries of the Church, is, is certainly not the case. But it still raises the question of who did decide about the New Testament canon. And here's how it was decided. It wasn't one person or even one one council of people or group of people, but rather from the first century forward, there was a recognition and an acceptance of simply the fact that the only books that should be read as authoritative texts in the churches should be those that can be traced back to eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know this, that this was happening from a document, a little fragment we find from the latter half of the second century A.D. And so there's a little fragment called the Muratorian Fragment, and there's some people that are wanting this one book called Shepherd of Hermas to be read in the churches, and they're pushing for this book, Shepherd of Hermas. Let's read that as, as part of our scriptures in the churches. And this document clearly lays out, as they're discussing this, it lays out and lets us know, no, we can't read Shepherd of Hermas because it comes 
after the time of the Old Testament prophets and after the time of the New Testament apostles. And so what that is letting us know very, very clearly at that point is that in these early centuries, Christians were determining which books ought to be read as authoritative in the churches according to what books could be traced back to apostolic eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we find that in the New Testament. So the book of Matthew is written by the, can be traced back to the apostle Matthew. Mark was actually written by Mark, but what but that's traced back to is Mark was Simon Peter's interpreter or translator. So he translated these stories over and over for Simon Peter until he memorized them. So in Mark, we have the words of Simon Peter. Luke was connected to Paul, and he wrote both Luke and Acts. John, of course, was an apostle. Uh, Paul saw Jesus on the, the Damascus Road, and so the letters of Paul, again, traced back to somebody who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews, people had questions about it for a long time, and the reason they had questions about it was because it doesn't give us an author, and yet they received it as inspired on the basis that on the, latter, in the last part of Hebrews, it mentions Timothy, so they knew it came from somebody associated with Paul, who was a witness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. As we go through the entire rest of the New Testament, we find every text in the New Testament traceable to somebody who saw Jesus or somebody who was a close associate of those who saw Jesus. And so that's the way the Church was determining which books were authoritative. And the books that they were questioning and wondering, does this belong or not, it's not because they were waiting for some council or some political machination before they decided whether that book would go in the canon. What they were trying to determine is, can we reliably trace this back to eyewitnesses? Because eyewitness testimony mattered deeply to the early Christians. How is the New Testament copied? Well, it was copied over hundreds of years, all the way up to the mid-15th century when the printing press, as we know it, was invented. It was copied, and this is amazing when we think about it, it was copied by hand over and over where they took one copy and would copy it for another. So one church might have a copy of a certain gospel, and another church might not have a copy of that gospel, so they would copy it by hand for that church, and then they would make a copy of that copy and a copy of that copy. And so we have ended up, and what survives from the ancient world is well over 5,000, somewhere around 5,700 copies or fragments of copies of the text of the New Testament. More than any other text in the ancient world, is, has, we have copies of the New Testament and fragments of copies, thousands upon thousands of them, to the extent and to the point that we can, in almost every instance, reconstruct the original wording, even though the original the pieces of the New Testament, those original documents have been lost over the centuries. We have so many copies that can be traced back to those copies, those original documents, that we can, in almost every instance, reconstruct exactly how it was written in the first century because of the vast wealth of copies we have of the New Testament. Now I want you to talk about where did the English Bible come from? Well, the English Bible uh, came to, of course, English was not around in the New Testament time period. It's a language that developed many centuries later, uh, especially as we know it. Uh, but the English Bible begin the Bible begins to be put into English by one of my favorite people that started putting it in is a guy named the Venerable Bede. He's called Bede, or the Venerable Bede. And he was a, a monk, and he began, for example, and this is one of the earliest ways the Bible gets into English, is he went through the Latin text of the Bible, and he put above each Latin word the English word. So one by one, putting those in in this very rough English translation of the Bible. Uh, the Venerable Bede literally died in the middle of the Bible. He was uh, copying the Bible and was uh, translating it into English when he died, and died in the middle of John's Gospel um, as he was uh, translating John's Gospel. Now, much more significant uh, than that, at least for, for uh, really getting the Bible into English, of course, John Wycliffe, um, who rendered the Bible into, or he oversaw the rendering of Bible into English. He himself didn't do it, but he oversaw it in England uh, in the 1300s. Now, John Wycliffe bears the distinction of being uh, one of the few people in Church history who was burned after he died, uh, in the sense that he, w he died in good standing with the Church, but after he died, 
decade, um, the the translating of the Bible into English was declared illegal um, in in England, and so uh, in the early 1400s, John Wycliffe's body was dug up and burned at the stake um, by order of a church council uh, that had decreed uh, that, among other things, that uh, the Bible should not be put into the English language. And so the English Bible got off to a rough start, we could say, in many different ways, uh, particularly with uh, John Wycliffe, a man who uh, was sentenced to burn at the stake after he was already dead. My guest is uh, Timothy Paul Jones. We're talking about how we got the Bible. You say, by the way, Doc, that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, sufficient, uh, does this mean there are no errors or copying mistakes? That's a, such an important question, and it's an important way to put it, because we have to distinguish or separate between two different things. When we say that the Bible is inerrant, infallible, inspired, all of those things, we are speaking of the Bible as it was originally written, as it was written, that it was inspired in such a way that there are no errors in it. But then sometimes people hear about all these copying mistakes that I've already hinted at over the over the centuries, that uh, these are copied by hand, and, co- and they said, but you just said there were no errors in the Bible, and yet there, it seems like there's errors in this. Well, we need to distinguish and clarify that we're speaking of the Bible as it was originally written, had no errors in it. Now, as it was copied, there were different times that they miscopied it. Now, that's not really an error. That's a copying variation. It's something where they have a variant in the copying as they copy it through the ages uh, in that. But here's what's most important to do with all this copying process, is that so many copies have survived, particularly of the New Testament, but also of the Old Testament. So many copies have survived that we are able to reconstruct the original wording of the text in almost every instance. And in that tiny, minuscule number of instances in which we can't reconstruct the original wording of the text as it was written, none of the variations that we find in the text affect anything we believe about God or about His work in the world. And therefore, we can say with confidence, with integrity, that Scripture is sufficient. That is, it has been copied with sufficient accuracy for us to get the message that God originally inspired. Are there some copying variants and variations? Yes, there are. But the Word as we have it is sufficient for us to get the message that God inspired. What was the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery in 1947? Well, let's take ourselves mentally back to the 1940s and understand the state of the manuscripts that were available of the Old Testament in the 1940s. So in that time, and for, for many, many years before that, the oldest manuscript, the oldest manuscript evidence for the the Old Testament was from hundreds of years after the time of Jesus. In fact, about a thousand years was uh, was after that was the, the earliest copy that we had of the Old Testament. Now, so many people thought, many people assumed that over those hundreds of years since the, New, the Old Testament was, was written, that it had been changed a lot, and that probably we didn't even have the same Bible that Jesus had in Hebrew and Aramaic, that that had been edited over the years to the extent that uh, we didn't even have that text anymore. Well, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, that what was found in there, about a third of the Dead Sea Scrolls, are fragments and copies of Old Testament books, many of them from before the time of Jesus. And what was discovered in that is a remarkable stability in the text. So, for example, the scroll of Isaiah that comes from the, the from before the time of Jesus is almost identical to the one that they had from hundreds of years afterwards. And so the scroll of Isaiah had not changed over the centuries. Now, there are a few, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are other books that it's clear that there were variant versions and uh, and other manuscripts and things like that of the Old Testament. But once again, none of these copying variations and manuscript variations that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there are many, None of them affects anything that we believe about God or about His work in the world. Uh, so, they, so there's a remarkable stability in the text, and it also demonstrated to us 
that the way in which the Old Testament co- was copied was something that we can rely on, the stability of that text. Where are the Dead Sea Scrolls now? Are they safe? Have they held up? Yeah, there's, uh, most of them are, uh, are in Israel. Uh, there's a, a museum of the scroll there. Uh, there are some that uh, are touring around uh, the country, and so you, uh, in certain cities, you'll from time to time have uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls come to your city, some fragments of them when they were in Cincinnati, uh, an hour or two from us. Uh, we went and saw them and, uh, and looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls that, uh, that were there. And so, yes, they, they still exist. Scholars are still using them. Scholars are still translating and, and trying to determine uh, all the, what all the meaning is behind um, some of these texts, uh, particularly the ones that were written about the community in Qumran, where they were uh, discovered at. Uh, so there's still research and study being done on the Dead Sea Scrolls to this day. Dr. Jones, what arguments would you use with a skeptic who doubts the reliability of the Bible? Well, I would aim them in a place that you may not expect me to aim them, and that is toward the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe everything we do in relation to skeptics should make a beeline for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if somebody asks you, why do you believe the Bible is true, what I'm going to say to them is, I believe the Bible is true because Jesus is alive. And you see, if he's risen from the dead then he believed the Old Testament to be true, so I will trust the Old Testament to be true. And if he is alive, the people who wrote these descriptions of him in the New Testament and these reflections on the meaning of his life in the New Testament, they did so because they witnessed him alive. They saw Jesus alive. And I look at the New Testament, and I see in the Gospels, um, I see very, very clearly that there are multiple independent testimonies to Jesus being alive. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of tell one version of the story. John tells another version of the story, and yet both of them agree in very significant details about Jesus. We have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this very clear old testimony that has been passed on, this oral tradition that had been passed on through the decades, uh, through the Apostle Paul, we have that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so I would point people to the resurrection of Jesus and say to them, I believe in the Bible because I believe that Jesus truly rose from the dead. Uh, 30 seconds before we run here. What's the definition of canon? The canon is simply the books that are authoritative for the people of God. That's simply it. They're authoritative for the people of God. The word canon means standard or a ruler for measurement. And so they, they, it's become to mean the standard for the people of God, uh, the authoritative standard for God's people. Timothy Paul Jones has been our guest. Doc, a million thanks. Great to visit with you. Thank you. Great to be with you. The book is called How We Got the Bible. Uh, we've got more after this. Right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, you're listening to the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN right here in Orlando, Florida. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Join Richard Jordan, president of Grace School of the Bible, as he opens God's Word every Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. If you missed the Sunday broadcast, you can listen and study along with Dr. Jordan 24-7 at WTLN.com by clicking on the podcast tab and then Riches of Grace. Riches of Grace, a service of Grace Impact Ministries at graceimpact.org. 5.30 Sunday on the new 94.9 FM. 4.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. You want to feel connected, at one with your world, informed, included, and inspired. So no matter where you are, we have an accident on the expressway. When important things happen, you see this man. Contact authorities immediately. We're here at all hours, in the moment, on every device in your life. Your local radio and TV broadcasters. We investigate and inform. Our political investigation saved taxpayers. Give back to the community. Our radio station is now accepting donations to help rebuild this community. Even save lives. It's time to just hunker down. It's too late now to leave. America's number one source for news, weather, and information. On your radio, TV, computer, tablet, and smartphone. We are broadcasters. Always here for you, wherever here may be. 
Tell Washington local stations matter by texting RADIO to 52886. Furnished by NAB and the station message and data rates may apply. I've been searching for ways to grow deeper in my faith and strengthen my daily walk, and I found it at Crosswalk.com. From Bible study tools to Christian living articles, devotionals, movie reviews, to marriage and finance articles, well, you get the idea. Crosswalk.com also has a great online community of Christians just like me. With everything just a click away, it's like having a trusted friend, teacher, and mentor right here at my desk every day. Crosswalk.com, the intersection of faith and life. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950. WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Uh, Our guest in the first half hour, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, uh, talking about his new book, How We Got the Bible. Uh, Eric Walker is with us uh, from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, author of The Codist. Eric, it's nice to chat with you. I appreciate your joining me. Thank you, Pat, for having me on the program. Eric Walker, he's an author, sought-after speaker, who connects the dots in the news to Bible prophecy and the end times. His insights into the Middle East are part of his weekly radio show, and he brings a Jewish perspective to many of the complex issues facing the world today, and it's a real privilege to have him. Uh, tell me about the title of this book. What does that mean, The Codist? Well, in the programming world, The Codist is someone who writes code, but in the novel itself, uh, The Codist is a, uh, a tagline for the main character, Jake Aronson, who has savant gifting and being able to decipher codes and puzzles, and he's a tremendous asset to both the NSA and the intelligence community worldwide. So I kind of, uh, uh, the uh, characters in the book who he works with in the NSA kind of gave him that title, uh, kind of as a little bit of a dig at first, but then they began to respect his great gifting in that area. Eric, I want you to give us a bit of a background about your own faith journey and how that influences what you write and speak about. Well, I was raised in a Jewish home in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a large Jewish community there, and served it well as a youth, uh, was bar mitzvahed, was confirmed in the synagogue, and later on in life, as my journey took me around the world as an executive with AT&T and Hewlett-Packard, I came across a lot of people that invited me to church, and I would respond to them, well, thank you, but I'm Jewish. And they would say, I'm sorry. And I never really understood that. I would say, are you sorry I'm Jewish? No, we're sorry. (laughs) We don't want to offend you. And so I began to realize over time that uh, uh, there was maybe more to life than all I had been living, which was the big house, the big car, the status of a directorship with a large corporation. And I began a spiritual journey, and that journey took me back to those Christian friends They kept saying, come to church, and I just wasn't interested in church. I wasn't interested in this Jesus Christ who was, uh, as a youth, uh, the Jews were were called Christ killers. Uh, But they continued to provoke me. Uh, They hadn't provoked me to envy yet, but they had provoked me. And they finally found a place that they said that uh, they thought that I would enjoy. It was a Messianic synagogue in Atlanta, Georgia, where I lived at the time. And so they continued to encourage me to go, and finally I went uh, on my own, and I heard the gospel preached in a way that pierced my heart. Mm. And it was in Jewish terms, and it was about the Lamb of God. But it wasn't the Lamb of God that John was talking about at first. It was the Lamb of God on Mount Moriah for the redemption of Isaac and all of Israel. It was the Lamb of Exodus chapter 12 that redeemed us from the bondage to Pharaoh, and then the connection to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, you know, in the Jewish mind, the word take away is the operative word there. It wasn't about the lamb, it was about the takeaway. And in Judaism, the the only time sins were taken away uh, was at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But after the temple was destroyed, there was no altar, there was no ceremony of laying the sin of Israel on the head of the goats. So how is it that sin could be taken away? And as I began to examine and listen and hear and understand in the terms of this, that Rome had laid their hands on Jesus, Israel had laid their hands on Jesus, and the sin of the world was transferred to the scapegoat and the sacrifice goat, to the Lamb of God, who truly did take away 
the sin of the world, it pierced my heart, and I accepted the Lord at age 44. So for the last 20 years, I have been preaching the gospel. I have been studying the Word. I have been reaching out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, bringing this message of the Lamb of God, the one who redeemed us in Mount, on Mount Moriah, the Lamb who redeemed us from the bondage of Pharaoh, and now the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and redeems us from eternal separation from God. Eric, tell us about the DNA technology and what the future may hold if this falls into the wrong hands. Uh, DNA technology, the DNA Genome Projects, have been around in genetic engineering for about 40 years. And as we know, whenever there is an authentic, there's going to be a counterfeit. We know that whenever something is meant for good, that the enemy will come along and try to use it for evil inclinations. And there is a Y chromosome marker uh, within the DNA of the Levitical line of Jews. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, God made a promise to Aaron uh, in Exodus chapter 29, and then he confirmed that promise in Numbers chapter 25 to Aaron's grandson Phineas that, they, that Aaron would forever have someone in his lineage to serve as high priest. Well, in the overall scheme of the Bible, uh, the return of Jesus is predicated on the on the uh, ones who rejected Jesus calling for his return, and that was the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was headed up by the high priest. So when we think about this, Pat, we realize when we look at this promise, <clears throat> excuse me, that someone is alive today ready to serve as that high priest. Well, if there was a way to take that DNA marker and convert it into a weapon that only targeted those people in the Levitical line, then the enemy could come along and create a virus which would be a weaponized DNA, either through the air or through the water, that would target the Levitical line and therefore thwart the return of Jesus. You know, he said clearly in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, that he wasn't coming back until Jerusalem called for his return. Well, the key to that is, is that the Sanhedrin has to be reformed, and that high priest must stand at the head of it. Well, when we look at the uh, genetic engineering facilities in Tehran, one of the things that we've been distracted by is this Iran nuclear deal. But in reality, Tehran has one of the largest genetic engineering facilities in the world. As a matter of fact, 200 Russian engin genetic engineers left the Soviet Union when it fell and relocated to Tehran. What are they doing there? So as I began to examine and study uh, this revelation about this Y chromosome marker, I found out that uh, DNA uh, is being used to develop weapons uh, to target specific groups. Now, Iran wasn't always called Iran, Pat. It was called Persia mm -hmm. for so very long, and that's the biblical reference to it. But in 1935, under the Hitler regime, Iran was influenced, I'm going to tell you, Persia was influenced to change their name to Iran, which in Arabic means Aryan nation. And so we know that their vision for this Islamic caliphate is to either convert or annihilate anyone that does not adhere to the Islamic ideology. So as I found this research and I began to dig in and knowing my Jewish lineage and knowing what Hitler's perfect solution was for eliminating the Jews, I became quite concerned and alarmed that uh, this is real in the world, in countries like Pakistan, North Korea, Russia, Great Britain, even the United States, Israel, North Korea, all have ongoing DNA bioweapon development facilities. And so I wrote the CODIS as a work of fiction so that I could bring a real truth in an entertainment package, uh, a storyline that's engaging. The reviews are stellar. Uh, the book is doing extremely well. And people are grasping a hold of this ideal that anti-Jewish is anti-Jesus, anti-Israel is anti-Jesus, and this plot that began in the Garden of Eden, when there was enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, has been playing out in the world for thousands of years, and this is a technology that uh, is real, it's being used, uh, Ebola, uh, H1N1 were all genetically engineered viruses. We know that that capability is in the world, and we know what God means for good. The enemy will try to use for evil. 
to advance his purposes. But we also know that God is sovereign and that he has his hand over Israel. He has promised that there will always be a remnant. So this plot will be defeated, but yet it exists in the world today as a real uh, issue. And people are giving out their DNA information as if it were something that wasn't so personal. But the reality is, is that the Internet is not protected, regardless of what kind of information you think you're hiding. If you put it out there, it's available. And there's over 80 million DNA records floating around the Internet right now today, both through the medical community, ancestry DNA, and many other ways to get your DNA out there. Eric Walker is our guest, the author of The Codist. Eric, the two key characters in your book are a young Jew and Muslim. Yes. Uh, What's the dynamic between the two characters, and what did each learn about the other? The uh, two characters, Jake Aronson and Hakeem Baba, are thrown together in a prep school with unusual ties to the intelligence community outside of uh, Washington, D.C. and Bethesda, Maryland. And it's an international school of diplomats' children, and Jake's father uh, works in the State Department. Hakeem's father uh, came through from Tehran to Turkey and worked in the uh, uh, ambassador's office uh, to the ambassador from Turkey. And so they become roommates, and of course their backgrounds are dynamically different. Jake is a secular Jew from Maryland. <clears throat> Hakeem is a, uh, an Islamic young man from Tehran, relocated to Istanbul, and they're thrown together. And as they begin to develop a personal relationship and a friendship, Jake brings Hakeem into his home and introduces him to Jewish life. And during this time with the Aronson family, the dynamic of the difference between Ishmael and Isaac and the promises of God and who's God and who's Allah, and these dynamics are now being entertained and intertwined. And while Jake uh, brings Hakeem into his home, Hakeem learns of this family secret that the Aronsons are in the line of Aaron. And Jake's father is quite proud of the fact that that there's now DNA testing, and, and he shares it with them, and they're very proud of their heritage. But Hakeem, who's bent on the Islamic ideology, gathers this information, and uh, two years <clears throat> he spends as a roommate with him, and then suddenly is called back to Tehran early on, and he begins to embark on uh, a career in genetic engineering and uh, creates a clandestine lab in Geneva, and works on the weaponization of the DNA because of the secrets that he learned within the Aronson home. All seemingly innocent in the beginning, but it builds to such a crescendo uh, of the dynamic throughout the story of what takes place, and then their final final encounter uh, brings about a uh, uh, just a surprise ending that takes you into the next part of the series under the overarching vision of the Aaron Chronicles. Eric Walker is with us. We're talking about his book, The Codist. Misinformation and hatred have long been passed on by generations of Muslim parents and Imans. Uh, Any realistic way to reverse this, Eric, in your opinion? Well, Pat, we know biblically that the dividing line is going to come and that Jesus talked about the Antichrist being in the world. I'm a firm believer in the examination of this dividing line, and we know that ultimately the dividing line in the world is going to become the false prophet, the antichrist, the one-world government, the one-world religion. I believe that that's Islam. We have 1,400 years of history showing that the prophet Muhammad has almost as many followers as there are Christians in the world, and it's not going away. When you examine the Greek text and you look at the number 666 in the Greek, and then you take a look at the Arabic words in the name of Allah, and you superimpose them one on top of the other, they are almost identical. And that leads me to believe that this bandana that the ISIS uh, terrorists are wearing across their forehead that says in the name of Allah looks exactly like the 666 in the Greek. And so could the mark of the beast already be in the world? Could it be that God is revealing to us in a supernatural way that the dividing line is Islam and the ultimate battle will be be led in the Battle of Armageddon or the campaign of Armageddon? 
uh, led by the imam, uh, the uh, uh, 12th imam, the uh, Mahdi, the Messiah of Islam. And so we know that God is sovereign. And Pat, when people ask me about what's going to happen, I tell them, all is well with my soul. Everything is as it should be. God is sovereign. And if we believe and accept in the sovereignty of God, everything that's playing out in the world today is orchestrated for the purpose of bringing Israel to the point of confession, of uh, repentance for the national sin of Israel, which is the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Our guest is Eric Walker. Uh, We've got more with Eric right after this, folks, on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Hi, I'm Barbara Sandek, your host on Grace Notes, a 15-minute program that contains biblical teaching and a wide variety of music. Some of the subjects we address are why do we have trials and cultivating intimacy with God. You can listen right here on WTLN every Sunday at 2.45 p.m. Can't catch the whole broadcast? Visit our podcast on the web 24-7 on WTLN.com. So tune in. You won't want to miss it. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-824-5131 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-824-5131. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. This just in. Death, destruction, and violence. Film at 11. Come on. Is all the news really bad? How about some good news in your daily routine? You'll find it when you log on to Christianity.com. They've got great devotionals, terrific Bible study tools, quizzes, and links to the day's most inspiring stories from around the web. Get good news every day when you set your homepage to Christianity.com. Make a difference in your Internet life. Christianity.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Author Eric Walker is with us from Birmingham, Alabama. We're talking about his new book, The Codist. Eric, your book suggests a plot that involves a final solution to eradicate the Jewish people. Uh, Is this feasible? Well, it's very feasible. Uh, We know that uh, from the time that God proclaimed the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that Satan has enlisted people throughout history. He enlisted Pharaoh, who was uh, all about drowning the the, uh, uh, newborn sons. Uh, That failed. He enlisted Haman, whose vision was to annihilate the Jews, and that failed. Uh, He enlisted Herod, that once Jesus was born, that Herod would go out and try to kill the young boys two years and under. That failed. We now know that Jesus proclaimed that he's not coming back until Jerusalem cries for his return. So he enlists a man named Hitler, whose vision was to annihilate the Jews. That failed. So now you have this Islamic regime, uh, this Muslim caliphate, which is advancing throughout the world with 22 contiguous Muslim nations surrounding Israel, aligning themselves for the purpose of annihilating Israel. So it's very real. You know, the thought that that Iran is going to drop a nuclear bomb on Israel, well, when you realize the fallout would have reached into uh, the regions of Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Egypt, Syria and Lebanon, it doesn't seem really feasible that they're going to start 
a uh, war amongst themselves by killing as many Muslims as they would Jews. So could it be that they're working on a system to selectively eradicate the group that will bring about the responsibility for the return of Jesus without the high priest in place to lead the Sanhedrin, which was made of 70 elders, 70 Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. The Pharisees are still in the world. The Sadducees are still in the world. The teachers of the law are still in the world. We know that this is being reformed in Israel, but without the high priest at the helm. And listen, we, we, we may believe that uh, they study the Koran and the Koran only, but I know many people in Israel that, that are more biblically literate than most Americans, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, that the prophecies of the Hadith and the Koran uh, all address the return of Jesus. Uh, they're very familiar with the belief system and with the faith-based system and with the prophecies about the return of Jesus. And they know as well as I do that this is a key factor in the call for Jesus to return. So if the enemy can delay, listen, he's, he's working on a stay of execution. Uh, he's been sentenced to death. He knows who's going to kill him. He knows how he's going to kill him. He just doesn't know when. So anything he can do, anything Satan can do to delay the return of Jesus only advances the kingdom of Satan on earth. Well, that's interesting because uh, you're clear about one thing, Eric. Uh, There's a greater force at work, uh, one that will ultimately and completely eradicate evil. No question. You've got to talk about that, obviously. Yes. You know, Jesus, when he came, came for the purpose. As a matter of fact, two times in Scripture, he said uh, once to the woman at the well, uh, I didn't come for you, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The second time was when he sent the disciples out, and he said, listen, when you go out, go to the Jews, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The restoration of Israel and the regathering of the Jews to Israel in unbelief, and then the restoration of Israel so that the millennial kingdom and ultimately the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem will be the gathering place for the saints to gather in Israel. People ask about, does America matter? America matters because we're part of the all. We're part of all the nations of the world will come against Israel. But Israel is the apple of God's eye. Jerusalem is the spiritual capital of the world, and this plays an important part. God has promised that he will always reserve for himself a remnant. So Satan has to be defeated. Are there going to be casualties? There is. There's going to be loss of life. Jerusalem will fall in the campaign of Armageddon. The Jews will of Jerusalem will be scattered, <clears throat> and uh, Scripture tells us they'll be scattered to Basra, which is Petra. And uh, when Jesus returns, he fights the battle with the armies of the Antichrist at Petra. Uh, His garments are stained with blood as if he's been through the wine press. And then he brings the final step, the campaign, back to Jerusalem as he goes to the tents of Judah first and then to the tents of Jerusalem uh, and and defeats uh, the Antichrist. Uh, binds Satan for a thousand years, and then the final battle takes place where Satan is, is uh, for eternity, sent into the lake of fire. Uh, this has been God's plan from the beginning. And so each one of us has to make that choice. As to work. You know, Bob Dylan wrote a song that said, you got to serve somebody. You either serve the Lord or you serve the devil. Jesus was very clear, if you're not for me, you're against me. And each one of us has to make that decision as to which side of this dividing line we're going to be on. In closing, Eric, I want you to talk about the Islamic State. I mean, we read this week that they executed three detainees in the ancient Syrian city of Palmyra by strapping them to pillars and then blowing them up along with the antiquities. Yes. I mean, on and on it goes. Uh, what, What are your thoughts? Well, you know, 10 years ago, Pat, you and I would have looked at the Bible and, and in Revelation about the martyrs, and uh, we would have thought that was ancient history. The concept of beheading, the concept of Christian persecution was not really as, as real. I think it came home to roost in the shootings in Oregon a couple of weeks ago. 
uh, <clears throat> and we, we saw that it was specifically Christian persecution and that these nine that were killed were martyred. We look at the beheadings that are going on, and we realize that that is the martyrdom that the Bible talked about. So we are certainly in those days as we move closer to the events that will bring about the return of Messiah. I can't tell you whether or not it's five years, 10 years, 15 years, but certainly the stage is being set <clears throat> in the Middle East as we continue to draw closer to an understanding. Listen, in America, our shores are being breached. We have an enemy coming onto our shores, advancing uh, the Islamic agenda. We have uh, at every meeting, at every announcement that talks about uh, immigration and talks about what's happening in America, there's a representative from CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, and they only represent a 2% of our population at this point, but that's about to change. And so as we see the advancement of the Islamic regime uh, with the Islamic ideology, it is a colonization strategy of convert or die. It is coming to America. Uh, it is the secret jihad. Uh, it's very overt and taking place in the Middle East. And what's happening there, not only can it come to our shores, it will come to our shores. The persecution for being a Christian is real and relevant. We're seeing it, we're watching it with our own eyes, and we've actually experienced it here on our own shores. So we have to be aware of this agenda. We have to be aware of the vision, and the vision is constant and consistent, regardless of the battle between Sunni and Shiite, which is the fulfillment of the prophecy over Ishmael that he would be a wild donkey among men, and all the nations of the world would war against him, and he would war against his brothers. They ultimately come under the unified vision of the Quran where one out of every 55 verses of the Quran deals with violence. And it's real, and it's happening, and they're destroying biblical history, they're destroying biblical foundations, and they're advancing the vision of Islam in a radical, violent way and targeting Christians throughout the world, and it's coming here, Pat. For those who are fearful about the times we live in, Eric, what's your message to them? God is sovereign. God is on the throne, and that all things come under his, his uh, purview, and all things come under his command. And so the, time is, is, uh, the times are perilous, yet uh, I take great comfort in the fact that everything is as it should be according to God's plan. Listen, Israel's not going to come to faith until it's so persecuted and it's so surrounded by an enemy that it calls for the return of Messiah. Everything is leading up to that point. The Bible is real. The prophets told us these days were going to come. Jesus even told us that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes and famines. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. My guest has been Eric Walker, author of The Codist. Uh, we've got a wrap-up right after this, folks, on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your host, Dr. Daniel Forbes and attorney Delta Chen. Families by Design airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Folks, thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, we always look forward to our visits with you. Uh, uh, today, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones uh, joined us in the first half hour talking about how we got the Bible. And then Eric Walker uh, talking about his new book, The, the Codist. Uh, we had a good visit with Eric today. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And my most recent book is out. It is called Extreme Winning. Uh, a look at the 12 qualities that the extreme winners have. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, HCI is the publisher. It's in bookstores now. Uh, would make a great Christmas gift. In the meantime, 
Uh, have a wonderful week ahead. Uh, enjoy church tomorrow with your family. And then we'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.